Um, as you, you know, many of you have been to church already, I think, but, and some of you came to the Saturday seminar. It is really a delight to have Professor James Busher here from the seminary. Um, as I said yesterday to the Saturday seminar, it was good for two reasons. One, we didn't have to worry about what he'd say, which is always nice. And uh, it, was, it was utterly seamless, given everything we've talked about this year. He really honed in on icons, and that was very helpful. But just the whole idea of beauty and the incarnation, um, you know, couldn't have been better yesterday. So he's here today uh, for another Bible study, you know, preach one more service and then drive back to Fort Wayne. So let's pray and then we will let him, uh, we'll let him lead us here. The Lord be with you. By thy cross thou didst destroy the curse of the tree. By thy burial thou didst slay the dominion of death. By thy rising thou didst enlighten the human race. O benefactor Christ our God, glory to thee. Amen. Um, I maybe say just to, to, to begin with, uh, when I heard that I was, uh, when I was planning to come here and realized I was going to have to preach four services and do Bible class, do a seminar Saturday, I, I was really thinking, especially after a hard week last week in class, I thought, wow, this is going to be, I'm going to be uh, exhausted. But really I find myself here toward the end and uh, I actually kind of feel rejuvenated. Actually, it's been very good and I think that's uh, to be attributed to, you know, you and, and the interaction we've, I've had with you. Sometimes it's good to get away from seminarians for a while and uh, to be with real people living out uh, in the church. And uh, so I think it's actually been very good for me. Uh, you know, this, this weekend has been wonderful. It's been great to interact with you. You have a wonderful community here and, and wonderful pastors. Uh, uh, been very kind to me. I've got to know my cousin again, Mary, and the prayers. It's uh, kind of uh, been a wonderful weekend for me. Well, I wanted to, I didn't really have uh, a great deal planned for this morning. I kind of, uh, I do that sometimes, just kind of play it by ear and see what comes up. Um, but um, we've talked about uh, uh, icons last time in the, in the theology of the image, the image of God. And I thought maybe today we didn't have a chance really to talk yesterday about you know, one of the fundamental Bible texts uh, that the early church is reading that leads them to think in terms of iconography. And I, I think we maybe want to begin there, and that's Genesis 1 and the creation of man, and kind of look a little bit at Genesis 1 to 3, at a, maybe a different aspect than I really kind of talked about yesterday. So if you would, if you turn to Genesis 1, and we'll kind of look at 1 to 3 a little bit, uh, at the place of man uh, in God's creation. Um, and as we go through this, uh, what I want you to notice and, and think about, maybe as we begin to read, uh, is that in the image, in the understanding of the image of God, and certainly how the early Christians, and when, I, and when I say that, I'm talking about kind of following the apostles, even in the New Testament itself, but, but following the apostles, you know, through uh, the fourth, fifth centuries of the, of the early church. Uh, they're thinking of the image kind of on two different planes. That is to say, kind of, uh, if we can think of the image of a cross, um, that there is uh, in this a vertical aspect to the image in how God uh, is relating to his creation. And we want to talk a little bit about that as we think about uh, man's place in how God relates to creation. It's very significant to me 
that uh, God makes man specifically uh, to be a mediator by which God is going to interact with his creation. And I, I think we want to see that and think about that, of man's place in uh, the cosmos. I think we don't think about that enough today. I think for us uh, today, salvation has become, uh, well, maybe you notice it also in, in kind of your community. You're in a very evangelical community but we think of salvation so individualistic and as if it's uh, just Christ has saved me and it's, and it's kind of all about me and my relationship to Jesus. You hear that kind of thing a lot. But for the early church, very much there's this sense of, of God, man's place in God's relationship to the whole of the cosmos, his place in, the, in, in the really the governing of the earth, of the cosmos, the whole universe. But then there's also in the image... Uh, for the early church, a, a horizontal aspect, a kind of temporal aspect of uh, that here we are at the beginning, but there's also a looking forward uh, to the end, uh, that God is going to create man with a purpose. And so with that kind of introduction, I want to maybe just get into uh, Genesis 1 and uh, 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 Genesis 1. Why don't we just read... Well, for our purposes, why don't we just read 26 uh, through, uh, I think maybe we'll go through about 28 uh, here in the creation of man. Um, And I'll just read it here in the translation I have. Does everyone have a Bible or kind of access to a Bible or get a chance to see it? It's Genesis 1. We're in Genesis 1, 26 to 28. If if you're by somebody, you can kind of, but I'll read it here and... and, uh, Hopefully you can take note of what's... And maybe you're familiar with this text already. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the wild animals of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in His image, In the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over every living thing that moves upon the earth. Now, what I want to begin with just in this text and and begin to think about is first of all this vertical aspect of how God what is man's position here in the universe? Uh, what, are they, what are they to do? They're created to... What is their relationship to the birds of the air? The, dominion yeah, to have dominion. In fact, we see that in one of the commands that they are to subdue the earth. They're to have dominion over all things. Um, and the way the early church understood this, uh, in a very inter- interesting way... and is with the idea of the notion of an economy. I don't know, well, I don't know if you can see this, but uh, uh, when we, they use the word, economy is a Greek word, and oikonomia, and when you hear the word economy, when we hear it, what do we think of? Yeah, we think of money, right? I mean, that's how it's kind of applied. Uh, but economy is a much broader concept than that in Greek. Uh, in fact, it's, first of all, a cosmic kind of term. That is to say, economy uh, simply means literally the law of the household. 
And the economy is an order. It's an order by which things are governed. Uh, so that, um, uh, well, a good example of, of the economy uh, is uh, the military. Okay. Uh, the general gives a command, but does he carry it out? Well, not, he kind of filters down through the hierarchy until you know, some kind of uh, uh, lowly... A foot soldier or something actually executes it, right? You have this movement on the ground. There's an order to it. Another economy, is certainly that Paul dwells upon a great deal, is the notion of the human body. Okay. Uh, the body is many members in one working order, right? So that, you know, if, if you were wanting to understand what a hand is or something, or what the human hand is, you wouldn't just you know, cut it off and dissect it and know its parts. You also have to understand how it functions in the whole body, right? The hand affects the whole of the body. It's, it's this sense of an ordered kind of unity. Um, uh, well, creation was this kind of economy, and that is to say that God would rule over his world and relate to his world through the man and the woman. Uh, they each have a, a place in this economy. In fact, that's what image implies. Image, you know, image originally, uh, here as it's used in Genesis, certainly by Moses, uh, has the idea that if you're an emperor, if you're ruling a kingdom, one of the ways you marked your territory of how far your kingdom went is you'd put an image of yourself at the border. So when you came in on the road into you would know when you got into so-and-so's kingdom because you saw his picture. You, know, you saw his statue, perhaps. You saw his image. You knew where the emperor reigned by, that, by the placement of that image. Well, in some sense here, for as Moses is writing this uh, and is uh, recording what takes place, man is to be that. He shows forth the rule of God. The rule of God is going to be manifested where we see the man and the woman, right? where we see humanity. There is the image of God. Okay? That is the way in which he rules. And part of this notion of economy, in this economy, uh, is that the man and the woman are, um, let's put it, if we can put it this way, and this is typical of economy, uh, let's see, I need to get a marker that uh, we can see, I guess. Oh, there we go. That's, that's not, uh, they are equal, uh, but not interchangeable. Okay. Um, they can't be interchanged. Um, you know, I think this is actually a very important aspect in today's, uh, in America. When we think about humanity... Typically, when, when in our culture people speak about the equality of men and women, they really mean the interchangeability of men and women. Right? Uh, so that we get things like, uh, well, homosexuality, right? I mean, uh, we, can, we can interchange. We can, you can have two men, maybe two women. I mean, uh, we can, uh, men and women can just be substituted for one another. Uh, uh, but Scripture is uh, in this regard to image of what it means to be male and female, and it's true of the Trinity as well. I mean, in this economy of the Trinity, of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, 
that they are equal, but they're not interchangeable. They each have their distinct place in this governance of the cosmos by which God is going to govern. Okay? So that uh, you know, the man has his place, the woman has uh, her place. In fact, you see this kind of economy, in, especially in Genesis 2. And maybe we don't have to just read this, but, uh, uh, well, we can think about uh, their cre- the creation of the man and the woman a little bit, uh, just briefly. Uh, what is it that God uses to create man, create Adam, uh, in Genesis 2? Anybody know what God used? Okay, he used uh, the dirt. Okay. Uh, they used the dirt. We're going to see if we're, you're smarter than our, my seminarians, because they a lot of times don't get this. But the dirt, what else is used? His breath. Okay. Uh, he breathes into their nostrils uh, the breath of life. Uh, there is a third thing. No, not his word. Of course, word is involved. But, uh, but it, specifically in Genesis 2, there's a third thing. Seminarians don't get it either, so don't. Feel bad if you don't get it. But we don't, you know, what was that? Well, uh, yeah, his hands are going to be involved, but how does he get the dirt to cling together? Does anybody know what comes up? Uh, Look at uh, 2 verse, let's see, where is it? 2 verse 6. If you have your Bible. Water comes up. Uh, a fountain comes up out of the earth and waters the ground. Remember, there had been no rain upon the earth. So a fountain comes up. Water is involved. And for the early church, that was a very significant thing because you have water and the Spirit. What does that sound like? Sounds like baptism, right? And this is one of the aspects. When, Je- when Jesus talks to Nicodemus about being born again of water and the Spirit... Uh, Nicodemus should have gotten that, that humanity itself, creation was created with the combination of water and spirit. Uh, so water and dirt and breath uh, are bring forth man. What, by what does he create woman? Is woman? Does he use the dirt? Yeah, she's come right out of the man, right? In fact, does it even say that God breathed into Eve? No. In other words, she shares... In man, even in his breath, right? In some sense. They are bone of each other's bones, flesh of each other's flesh, life of each other's life. right? And they are fit into this kind of economy so that out of the man, the woman comes, and then through their union, we have this governance of creation. We have children can be produced, right? Man and woman are invited uh, uh, to share now in this uh, uh, way in which God continues to create. This is the sense of marriage. Why uh, in marriage, and certainly uh, for the early Christians, you know, uh, the union of husband and wife was a sacred act, um, is because they were sharing in God's creation, uh, in his creative work. Um, you know, you certainly get this in the Old Testament. Every child born is seen as the fulfillment of prophecy, as they look forward to the seed. Now, what's interesting about this economy in Genesis 1 and 2, this is the way all life comes from God, and it comes through the man and the woman to all creation. Now, what's interesting about that 
is that if we look at Genesis 3, they're to have dominion. Of There's an economy now for Moses in regard to sin. There's a reordering of the world, as Moses sees it. And where does sin start? In 3.1. Who, who is the instigator of this? We have the reference to the serpent. Okay. Now, what's significant about the serpent? How does it describe the serpent there? Yeah, he's more crafty than all the wild animals, right? Now, what's significant about animals is who's supposed to have dominion over whom? The man over the animal, the animal over man. Yeah, man's supposed to have dominion over the serpent. And so what you begin to have in Genesis 3 is a reversal of this economy. So that now we have a creature, and he gives the fruits to... To Eve, to the woman, right? And she gives it to the man. Uh, This is, and of course, who's absent from this economy of sin? God is absent from the whole thing. Um, Moses certainly wants you to see the utter reversal of how God has ordered the universe has now been turned upside down. That there is now a creature, that man and woman are bowing down to a creature, are submitting to a creature. And of course, behind this, we kind of learn, uh, is the devil, right? Uh, Later, we kind of, in Genesis 3, it's not specifically spelled out, but you certainly get that as you go. Uh, and, And what the devil has done has ordered the universe under himself. This is why... The devil is seen now as kind of the ruler of this age. That's why Adam and Eve's sin doesn't merely affect themselves personally. In fact, what is the curse because of Adam's... Well, we'll get to that. Just look at Genesis 3. Look at the uh, punishment then, how God works. Um, uh, First of all, who does God call to first? He comes, verse 8... Uh, to, to talk in... Who does he address first in verse 9, I guess it is? Yeah, he, he's still addressing by means of this economy, right? How he's established this ordering of the world. He addresses the man, and uh, when he says he, he's, uh, he's naked and hid himself, God asks him, did you eat? Uh, he says, the woman whom you gave to me, uh, perhaps there's blame on uh, a kind of implication that it's God's fault. Uh, you gave this woman to me. It is interesting. I mean, in marriage, uh, in Genesis 2, uh, did Adam have a choice on who he married? Or Eve? No. I mean, uh, uh, what united man and woman is not the will. It's not vow. That, that gets you betrothed. It gets you engaged. But marriage is... Uh, receiving is now you see your spouse as the one God has given to you. That's a fundamental difference. When you're engaged, you see the one as the one I've chosen. This is the man I've chosen to be with. This is the one I make a vow to. But in marriage, something fundamentally changed. Now I have to see this one as the one God has given to me. It's, it's one of the reasons divorce is a, is a, is a, a huge thing. I mean, it's a, 
know, very problematic because you're basically saying God's made a mistake in the marriage service, that this isn't the one I've given. And that's, of course, troublesome. That's part of this fallen world. But you can see this kind of economy of the man and the woman. Uh, she says, uh, he says, the woman you gave to me, she gave to me and I ate. Then he talks to the woman uh, here. Uh, she says, the serpent gave and I ate. And then he talks to the serpent. He talks to the creature. And, of course, uh, this is where you get the first promise. And what is the first promise here of the gospel? Uh, uh, The serpent will go on his belly. Uh, Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and hers. He will strike your, uh, crush your head, and you will strike or crush his heel. Right? It is a it is a gospel of victory over the devil. There's the sense in which now we have a conflict between these two worlds. The world as God had intended it, with man as his image, the one through whom he would govern the world. And of course now the new world that the devil has established, where man worships creatures. This is idolatry, right? Where we actually worship money or something, or we worship food, or we worship uh, an idol, you know, the, the head of a, of a bull or something like they later do in, in Exodus 32. Um, uh, and and, note, and I, what I wanted you to notice, you get this in uh, verse 14. The Lord said to the serpent, what, is his, what are his first words? Even before that, he does curse him, but he says, because you have done this, and this, it's hard to see in your translation, but this is the same word that is used of God creating heaven and earth. In Genesis 1.1 it says, in the beginning God, it actually literally in a sense says God did heaven and earth, he He worked it. He created it. We translate it created. This same word is now what he says to the devil. Because you have, in a sense, created this. There's a sense in which in Moses we have now a new world, a false world, a world ruled by hate, uh, by death uh, instead of life, by hatred instead of love, by divisiveness instead of unity, all of this. Uh, that's, you know, what I, I guess what I'm getting at is if you can see this, is that for the early church, this economy, what this meant, the original sin, uh, I'll put it this way, was the devil's sacrament. Uh, in other words, when he ate, it wasn't just that he transgressed a law, as important as that was, uh, but the fact that in that food, the devil's hatred, the, devil, the devil's uh, will, Now it was present in that, in the tragedy of sin, and this is how the early church certainly saw it, was not personal. The tragedy of sin is that man becomes a participant or a mediator of the devil's will. That's what you do when you sin. It's that the devil's will is done through you upon the earth, so that it contributes to the devil's rule of the world. It's a cosmic problem. Uh, I can't emphasize that enough, and certainly for uh, the early church, that was, that was huge. In fact, it says when they ate of it, 
when they ate of the fruit, uh, what did Adam and Eve do? Their, first of all, their eyes were, were opened. Okay. Uh, and that's, that's a very significant thing because it comes back in uh, Luke 24 and the Emmaus disciples. And the Emmaus disciples, when they eat with Jesus, what happens to them? Their eyes were opened. And that's certainly a reference, it's an undoing of Genesis 3. In fact, that's what the Lord's Supper is seen as. The Lord's Supper is the renewal of this true economy by which God wants to rule the world. A new cosmos has been established in Jesus. Jesus is the true man. Now God's, the Father, well, rules His world through Jesus, who is in the place of the woman, or is the renewal of the vocation of woman in that sense. Yeah, the church, right? We see this in uh, uh, the church. And then through the church, we have a reordering of the whole world. And that's what's manifested, I think, if you think about it this way, when, you, when the pastor preaches, uh, when the pastor does the absolution, it's not whose forgiveness is he giving? He's not giving his own. He's giving that forgiveness that comes from the Father. Uh, Jesus gives the, forget, the life that He's received from the Father. That which He has received, He gives. In fact, you see this kind of economy in the words of institution itself. Uh, what are the words of institution? On the night in which Jesus was handed over, we, we talked about that yesterday, the Father handed over His Son, the night in which he was handed over, what did Jesus do? Anybody? What's the first thing he did? He did what to the bread? Now, before he blessed it, he took it. And what does that mean? That, in fact, I, would, I kind of prefer to translate it, received it. Who did he receive it from? And don't say that there was just bread on the table. Who did he receive it from? Well, that which he received from the Father. He who created this bread, who gave the rain, who gave the seed, who collect, you know, that gave the bread. Jesus receives it from the Father, and then what does He do? Uh, he, uh, does he, he, first of all, gives thanks for it, I think, right? Or blesses it. He gives thanks to the Father for the cup. Uh, he, gives, he blesses it. He recognizes that it comes from the Father. And then what does He do with it? He breaks it and He gives it to the church. Um, this is that sense of economy. That, and that, that's how the Lord's Supper was understood. When you come into the church, you're coming into the kingdom. You're coming into a new universe in which God again has ordered His life, uh, has ordered His governance through this union of His Son with the church, which is manifested very concretely in the union of pastor and congregation. In that regard, that's the economy that's taking place. And of course, you as the church, having received that, you go into the world. Jesus says, the, the flesh that I give, I give for the life of the, of the world, the cosmos. This is, you're coming up to the ascension right, on Thursday. This is what the ascension's all about. That you don't just have God on the throne. Who's on the throne? 
And Jesus is not merely God. He is true man. We have man again on the throne. I don't know if you get the and when you read the Gospels, the significance that Jesus comes in his ministry, and almost the first thing he does consistently that, that really startles people is he does what to the devil? He has the authority to cast him out. And the devil has to obey. The devil has to submit. Now that's startling. Because this is a reversal of this whole economy that man has labored in. uh, Subject to sin and to death and the power of the devil. In Jesus you can see this starting to break away. This new economy. And this is what the ascension is about. We have a man on the throne again. Uh, Humanity is ruling. As he says in Matthew 28, after the resurrection, all authority, that's the authority that Adam lost, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. That juxtaposition of heaven and earth is is crucial in Matthew. Um, uh, How much time do we have? I don't want to... You got about 15. We got 15. Yeah, this is something I saw recently in that union of heaven and earth in Matthew that was startling a little bit. Maybe we can just briefly. Do you, anybody, maybe, maybe I don't have to look at the text exactly, but if you look at, if you're interested, look at Matthew 3, the baptism of Jesus in Matthew. Uh, what is it that, in fact, maybe it's all the Gospels that do this, but what is it that opens up? At his baptism. Yeah, the heavens are opened. Right? And what comes out? Of course, the Spirit comes out, right? Descends upon Jesus as a dove. Uh, and then you have that cosmic sense here of his baptism. has opened up heaven and the Spirit is upon Jesus. Now what's really interesting is that same word for opened comes up in Matthew again. Uh, but not with regard to the heavens this time. But look at uh, this startling kind of passage in Matthew 20, 26. Let's see if I can find it. Um, or 27, I guess. It, it's, in the, it's right after the cross. Uh, yeah, look at uh, 27, verse 50. Uh, and we learn in Matthew that not only is Jesus, he's going to come and not only baptize with water, but he's going to baptize with the Spirit. John the Baptist baptizes with water, Jesus will baptize with the Spirit. Now, look at uh, verse 50. Where does this baptism with the Spirit take place? Uh, here, it says, Jesus cried again with a loud voice. And that loud voice has the connotation of a battle cry. The, the cry of a victor. It's not, it's not the cry of a victim here. It's one who is in a battle, and he's won. It's a kind of a victorious, loud ye- uh, yell. And he gains the victory in verse 50, but then he says, loud voice, and then it says he did what? Yeah, he, uh, and that's not just any spirit. That's, he exhaled the Holy Spirit. Okay. Now what does that do? That spirit that, the heavens open and came down upon him. He now exhales. And what happens as a result of that? Verse 51. The veil of the temple is torn from top to bottom. The earth has an earthquake. 
The rocks are split, and now what is opened in verse 52? The tombs are open. Earth is opened. And now whereas heaven was opened at his baptism to let the Spirit out, now the earth is opened up to let who out? The dead. This is what? This is baptism in Matthew. This is the union of heaven and earth in the work of Jesus. He's opened up heaven for the Spirit, and he's opened up the earth so that the dead can come forth. This is all very uh, baptismal. This is this sense of what this new, this new cosmos that's taken place. Uh, you know, you get this in some, a lot of places in the, uh, in the passion of Jesus. For instance, uh, when he is crucified, uh, what happens? In the middle of the day when it's supposed to be light, what happens at his crucifixion? It's dark. That's the primal darkness of Genesis 1, right? But then in Matthew 28, verse 1, when it's supposed to be dark, and in fact it says at evening time, uh, it actually says literally, a light dawn forth. Uh, so there's light even in the darkness. When it's supposed to be dark, we have the light. That's the Easter vigil service. In fact, Matthew 27 looks like an Easter vigil very much. But this is the sense, this is what you're getting ready to celebrate here at the Ascension, that Jesus ascends and then he pours out the Spirit. It is, this is the kingdom. In fact, in the early church, the first thing the pastor said was not in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. When you entered the church, the liturgy began with, with him saying, blessed is the kingdom of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Uh, in other words, they were entering a universe a new universe ruled by resurrection and life and forgiveness and love that was overcoming this. Uh, even the Lord's Prayer. What do we say in the Lord's Prayer? Uh, yeah, thy, thy kingdom come, and then right, what right after that? Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And now how's it going to be done on earth as it is in heaven? Through... You, through Jesus it was done, and also now through you, the church. You become a participant in God's uh, governance of the world, of his love for the world. Uh, This is this kind of cosmic, vertical uh, aspect that you get uh, in the image. And we haven't got to the horizontal yet. Do we even have time? Do we have a few minutes? Got a few minutes? The other aspect of the image, of man and the image of God, and, and of course... You know, what I'm saying here is that, you know, for the New Testament, Jesus is the image, you know, in which God, man was created. In fact, you see that. Uh, maybe we can look at a couple of those passages before we close. Uh, look at uh, Colossians chapter 1, I think it is. Colossians 1 in the, in the New Testament, uh, verse 15. This is a hymn. You know, it's, it's earlier even than Paul, I think. I think this is a uh, text that uh, he quotes, evidently. A hymn probably sung in the church. Uh, or a creed, perhaps. But Colossians 1, I think... Let's see if I can find it. Um, uh, do I have... Uh, Colossians 1, yeah, 15, I guess is where it is. And he's describing Jesus here. And this is the very earliest, in many ways, the way uh, the church understood Jesus. 
what is what is he what is he called here in verse fifteen? He uh, Jesus is what? Yeah, he's the he's the icon of the invisible God. That's the word icon. Right. This is the same word in Genesis one. Uh, 26. He is the image. Now, how is that different than what we just read in Genesis 1 in Adam? Is there any, anybody? Okay, in Adam it said he was created in the image. Here he says Christ is the image. What's the difference? Yeah, what, what, is, uh, what is Paul saying? Yeah, little short word is, that as Lutherans we're supposed to pay attention to, right? But uh, uh, the idea, Paul seems to be saying, at least this is, this is how the early church certainly took him, and, uh, uh, but is that what was the image in which Adam was created in the beginning? It was Christ. Uh, uh, Adam was created in view of the incarnation. Because this is how God wanted to relate to humanity, right? that already Jesus is in his mind, already the incarnation, already the death, the resurrection, all of that is already in the mind and the plan of God. This is the sense that man is created with a future, and that future is manifested in Jesus. Jesus shows us what it means to be true man. Uh, and this is, uh, this is the, seems to be what he is uh, saying here. In fact, uh, you get this especially uh, in uh, uh, the, the. Maybe we can just look at or look at this one text here. Remember, in Genesis one twenty six, Adam was given four commands. Anybody know what they were? One twenty six through twenty eight. He was told to what? Anybody remember? A lot of times it's translated increase, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Okay, those four. Uh, what does the word, the first word, increase? Sometimes it's be fruitful uh, or be fruitful. What does that mean? How do you usually take that? I like to see what people think when they hear that word. What's that? I know, we think it's have a bunch of children, but that's multiply. That's the second one, to multiply. The first one means something a little different. Uh, and I think Paul takes it this way, certainly. And that is, it literally means to grow up, to mature, to come to the harvest, to reach your end. Anybody have younger brothers or sisters? I was the youngest of five. My cousin knows that well. And I, anybody ever tell your younger sibling to grow up? I got told that a lot, it seemed like. And it was a very demeaning kind of thing. But that's the way my brothers and sisters are. They would like to demean me if they can. But, uh, of course, I pay them back. You know, it's not like it's one way. Right? <laughs> So this notion of growing up, of coming to maturity, that man is supposed to grow up, I just, before we close here, look, look at how Paul uses this with regard to Christ. Look at Ephesians. We'll just look at Ephesians 4. Um, and then, uh, we got to, are we, uh, 
Last thing? Okay. Yeah, we'll do this, and we'll just have to leave it there, I guess. But look at Ephesians 4 here just a bit. Let's see, where are, where are the verses maybe to look at uh, where you get this? Uh, look at, uh, uh, well, maybe starting at verse 9. This is a good ascension text. You might even hear this at the ascension. I don't know if this is a sign or not. But verse 9, you get the ascension in 7, 8, but we'll start at 9. He says he ascended. What does it mean but that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the same who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might do what? Fill all things. Where did Paul get that language? From Genesis 1. This is the command to man. It's all coming true in Jesus. Jesus fills all things. Verse 11, the gifts he gave were that some should be apostles. This is the ordering of this cosmos, the church. Some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Uh, Until all of us come to the unity of faith, verse 13, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, and we are to come to what? To, anybody see it there? Maturity to the measure of the full stature of Christ. We must no longer, and here's the key, most no longer be children tossed to and fro, blown about by every wind of doctrine, by people's trickery, by the craftiness and deceitful cunning. There's the devil in his temptations. But verse 15, by speaking the truth in love, we must do what? We must grow up. And we grow up into whom? in every way, into Him who is the head, even Christ. Um, And you get growth again in verse 16. From whom the whole body joined and knit together by every ligament with which it is equipped, as each part is working properly, promotes the bodily growth in building itself up in love. And so this this is the idea, that Jesus is the image by which God has reordered the world, and you are now the images of Christ, right? You're joined, you become the image of God again in Him. That's what this church is as a body. When we come to the sacrament, when we participate in this kingdom, we show forth this reordering of the kingdom of God. And of course, this is what allows us now go into the world and become bread for the world, as Luther would say, or, or to become the image of God in the world testifying by our love uh, for one another, what the kingdom of God is. Um, well, I think, I guess we'll, we'll leave it there. Uh, much more to be said, but uh, it's always dangerous to, have, to tell someone to get up here and talk. You never know when they'll quit. So why don't we just uh, close with the Lord's Prayer. <clears throat> our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy